Hey there, rock and roll podcast fans. This is Mike Hoban. Welcome to Rat Tales, the podcast that brings you the music and stories of the Boston rock scene that grew out of the mid-70s at the Rat and some of the other hellhole joints, each with their own sick charm. Welcome to Rat Tales. Our guest today is John Butcher, who first made his name as the founding member, singer, songwriter, and guitarist of the Boston-based rockers, Joanna Wild. He then went on to form the Grammy-nominated John Butcher Axis, a kick-ass band that put out five solid major label albums in the 80s and put him in the MTV rotation. He's also a solo artist, a record producer, has a multimedia production company that produces music scores for HBO and other entities. This summer, he's been doing shows with the Axis Band and Blues Project, and this fall, released an album, um, Gypsy Caravan, with the new band featuring Sal Baglio of Stompers fame and Alan Estes, who many will remember from the Estes Boys from the 70s and maybe the early 80s. Thanks for joining us today, John. Thanks for having me. So uh, I was uh, almost a little surprised, but the John Butcher Axis, you guys played like last week in Fall River at the Narrow Center for the Arts, right? We we only stopped uh, at the end of, uh, I don't know, I guess it must, must have been 84 or 85. Uh, we took a, a, a hiatus that lasted uh, a couple of decades. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, Chris and I have been Chris Martin, uh, the bass player, and I have been friends uh, ever since. Always. We never stopped. And we just decided, well, let's get together for one one show of course it was very successful and everyone had a good time including us so we're we do maybe a small handful of shows every year so um what we like to do is we like to get the backstory before we get into the boston band stuff so we like just start at the beginning you and i were talking the other day so yeah you're not from here as people can tell by your uh your your great diction you don't have a shitty boston accent like me and lenny uh so so why don't we why don't we get the backstory it's like uh, where'd you grow up i know you were in philly then you were in alaska for a little yeah, while I'll make, or, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll make it brief um okay uh, i i grew up uh uh in uh pennsylvania and then alaska because my uh father worked for uh, the government and uh i came back uh, to the east coast for high school uh and and sort of grew up in a suburb of uh, Philadelphia. And, and so, you know, my roots are East Coast, um, uh, PA, and also Fairbanks, Alaska, kind of a, a mix. Um, I was playing guitar since I've been, since I was, uh, I don't know, six years old. I saw singing cowboys uh, in the movies, like uh, trailers, Roy Rogers and, and guys who had the girl and the horse, and it looked pretty good to me. Uh, and they played guitar. So that's kind of where I started. 
And uh, then I went through the process that many guys like me went through. You have a high school band, right? And then, and then before you know it, you're going to college. So I'm going to college uh, for the first time. I, I'm visiting Boston, uh, Massachusetts. And that really took me over. The city took me over. I decided once I got here, I wasn't going to leave. So, so you, you, you came from Philadelphia and you, um, and you moved up to Boston and you fell in love with the city, you said. So and out, of high school, out of high school, yeah. I, uh, <clears throat> I enrolled in a, a, a junior college called Graham Junior College for television production. My mother wanted me to have something to fall back on in case music didn't work out, right? Smart woman. Yeah. So, so I, I went to this uh, television production school to learn broadcast journalism. And lo and behold, there's Johnny A. He was there for some other reason. I can't remember what course he was involved in. To but, meet girls, apparently. Yeah, maybe. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Not that school. Uh, but we were in Kenmore Square. Uh, the, the, the college was in Kenmore Square. So both of us were in the middle of uh, Boston at its hub with the rat on one side and, and uh, Lansdowne Street around the corner and the paradise up the road. And it was an amazing place to, to go to school. After school, having met musicians, I decided I was going to stay and make, this my, and make Boston my home. So what did you, so you were in college you're pretty young when you start. So is Joanna Wilde the first band that you put together? I mean, yeah. in, in Boston. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that I organized it as much as we, the four of us, Jeff, uh, Troy Douglas, Settler III, and of course, uh, Derek Blevins, who ended up staying in Axis. Uh, we all got together and decided to make a band. And I had done it once before in high school, so I was comfortable with giving it a go. And uh, unbeknownst to me, it got popular, uh, you know. I how did you meet these guys? I just, I just want to back up. Sorry. You know, uh, I think I met Derek at, a, a, I went to somebody's gig. I can't remember the name of the band that Derek was in. And I went to see him August, a band called August with Jamie Pease. And I saw Derek and I thought he was great. And I just told him if, if things don't work out, I'd love for you to work with me as a drummer. And it, and it worked out. And as far as Jeff Linscott and Doug, I can't remember exactly how we met, but you have to remember that uh, in, in Boston, there was a close-knit uh, 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 music community, very close-knit. Everybody knew everybody. We hung out in the same places. We saw each other in the same music venues. So it's not that surprising. You know, I met everybody back then. I met, uh, I was living next door to Aerosmith. Um, in Austin? Yes. <laughs> My apartment was next door to theirs uh, when they were starting out. So it was very close, very tight knit. And, and, and uh, I think we all met each other. So I, I think Joanna Wild, I, correct me on the timeline, but um, I was looking at like some of the first gigs that, that got posted on this website that I saw. Yeah. And I think some of them were like in 75, but you guys were probably playing a little bit before that, because when I saw the one that I saw, you were, you guys were playing, let me pull down and take a look at it. You were playing in Rhode Island. And I think you were like the opening act for the guess who and Duke and the drivers were on the venue too. So yeah. um, was that an, was that an early on gig? I mean, what, what it must you, have been, what year did it, did, does it say the year? It, say, it says 75. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't have known that. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't have remembered. But 
I guess so. I guess that was one of our early gigs. We got together, you know, and, and as I was beginning to tell you, the band got popular. People would come to see us and buy the tickets and, and follow us around. And, and so that's how we would end up on bills like that. Well, I, I would say I, I remember just kind of vaguely because I, I was I'm about the same age as you, but I remember your band. I'm not sure I saw you guys, but I well, actually I probably did see you guys. But I remember um, you guys being a kind of a big band then. you were probably one of the more popular bands in Boston at the time. I think um, so. probably like Thunder Train and you yeah, and right. a couple of other bands, because I remember uh, Mark Bell talking about well, you guys. Well, the Stompers. The st- you know. the, I think the Stompers were a little bit later. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when Joanna Wilde was around and, and with the way yeah, I... that's right. You're right. You're right. I remember now um, the Stompers uh, and Axis were, yep. were uh, sort of uh, uh, playing around the same areas and same places. So yep. Joanna Wilde uh, obviously predated that. And uh, geez, there's probably a lot of stuff I've forgotten, to be honest. <laughs> uh, just, so I, I, I'd ask you to describe your sound. So I listened to a couple of um, YouTube, like full concerts of Joanna Wilde. I didn't listen to the whole concert, but I listened to like excerpts. And it's little little Aerosmith stones, or even a little kiss sound, even though, you know, those guys were your contemporaries. But I would um, say hard. I would say hard rock. Yep. Hard rock. You know, I think. Uh, you know, before there was the before there was metal, there yep. was hard rock, and a lot of bands fit that that uh, humble pie. Yep, and, oh, I love humble pie. Of, me too, and, and so and so did Johanna Wilde, and so the, the the you know we emulated them a lot, and of course, I always loved uh, Jimi Hendrix, yep. and so co- you know combine that and Cream and Johnny Winter, shake it up, and you had Axis. Yep. So, uh, but on the Joanna Wild, Joanna Wild, yep. So the thing that I wanted to say, it's, I was looking at the at the pro, at the photos. It's like four good-looking dudes playing party rock, um, and I'm just thinking, like, geez, you guys, I can see why. I mean, plus I listened. The music was really that. That was a good band. That was a very good band. I thought so. Yeah. Did um, you guys? Go ahead. I, I thought so, and like I said, uh, based on the band's popularity. Uh, I think other people did too. I mean, so it's, I, I saw a list of people that you opened or played with. You, you guess, did you go on tour with Sly Stone? Jeez, I don't remember that. That was that again. The internet has always it said Kiss, average white band, but I wonder if they could, if they. No, we weren't on tour with them. These are bands we opened up for. That's what I mean. Oh, oh okay. Up up. In Boston, okay. Oh, That's, sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So when they came to when they came to town. Uh, and needed a, a local opener who could sell some tickets. We yep. got the gig. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So it's Sly Stone, Kiss, Average White Band. That's a pretty broad range of musical styles. Um, um, back then, if 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 you remember, there was not the kind of uh, separation and compartmentalization that there is now. Yeah. Uh, you could see us in front of Sly Stone, or you could see uh, 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 a hard rock band and a blues band and a pop band on the same bill. It yep. wasn't the same kind of uh, compartmentalization. Okay. Um, so let's, I wanted to talk about some of the songs we'd like to do so we can lead in. And uh, the, the, the bit that I was listening to, obviously Suzanne was a big song for you guys. It got um, uh, airplay on WBCN and you know. But-
actually liked a lot of the other material better. And there was a song that I was listening to called Let's Be Crazy. Another one was uh, Down on Love, and that oh was another God. great song. As you're saying these things, I'm flooded with memories. I had forgotten all of this. You know, I, I, the thing about being an artist, if you never stop, your life is a continuum. You don't see it in chapters. Yeah. It's all, you know, so I had forgotten a lot of this music. Yeah, Suzanne was, was great. It was a hard rock and it was easy to understand on the radio. Yep. And, and we got, you know, we got friends. Uh, we became friends with uh, the... To some of the guys at WBCN and WCOZ and and, yeah. and geez, that was that's quite a that's quite an elixir for a, a young musician starting out. Oh yeah. And like I said, you guys got to play some pretty heavyweight bands too. Yeah.
one thing I wanted to talk about, and you kind of so it, it's inevitable that it comes up and it's like you can't get away from it. And you so we have to address the Jimi Hendrix thing once and for all. So there's a quote from you. I think it just saw on Wikipedia, but it says outside of the surface aspect, this is you. I don't think there was much about me that was Jimi Hendrix like if you disregard the fact that I'm black and play a strat. Um, so but everything I read is like mentions they always put the Hendrix thing in there. And, you know, you did call your band Axis. Well, and, well, and, uh, so no, no, no. I, I, I want to hear. This from is you. how I respond to that. OK, good. When I was first starting out, it was important for me to separate myself from the greatest one of the greatest living guitar players in history. Right. It was important for me to kind of carve out my own niche. But as time goes on, you realize that that, that becomes less important. More important is making music that you like yeah. and that other people like. So, uh, you know, I said that at the beginning because that was my focus then. But now looking back, you know, 35 years, I realized that I shared a lot in common with Jimmy. One thing is the love of the blues. Yep. All the, there is a blues element to all of my songs and there always has been. And it was only my youthful ignorance that kept me from embracing those comparisons instead of trying to distance myself from them. That's just youth, man. Not yep. understanding that there's one other element too. Let's be honest with ourselves and say that it is obvious that I'm a person of color. It is obvious that I play guitar in some of the ways that Jimmy did when he was living. And so I don't run away from that now. I don't run away from those comparisons. I understand them better than I ever have because I'm older. You yeah. know, I have a certain amount of wisdom and hopefully <laughs> and some understanding about the world and my place in it. Yep. Does that make sense? No, no, it makes perfect sense. And the other thing I was thinking um, when I was thinking about the comparison, it's like you're, you and Hendrix are both blues based, but then you took that that blues based. I mean, you don't sound like Albert King. You don't sound like BB. No. You don't sound like any of the old no. the old um, uh, blues players. You guys took it in, in a different direction with a blues bass is how I was thinking of it. I think that's um, how I think of it. Yep. You know, it's like the Stones did, too. You know, so, you know, Aerosmith are all, you know, all, a lot of my favorite bands. From that era. <laughs> Steven Tyler, I remember in the early days, would get compared to Mick Jagger. Yep. Now, it was important for Steve to to carve out his own niche. He did that uh, arguably in various ways. And now when people make <clears throat> those comparisons, <clears throat> they don't have the same kind of gravitas. They don't have the same. Because because Steven Tyler is now himself. And I understand exactly how that works. When you start out, you want to be recognized for who you are. Of course, who you are is fluid. It's growing. It's changing. You become who you are. Yep. You, you don't get born that way. Right. So that's how I relate now to Hendrix and and people drawing comparisons and that sort of thing. It, 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 it's it's part of my history yep. and was part of my uh, 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 pathway. And I'm proud of it. Yep. You're a better singer than him, too. So <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the one of the things this one I wanted to bring up, too, it's like 
I wanted to, I want to touch on so as a black musician, even like a wildly popular one, like when Joanna Wilde was rising, it was just about the time that busting started, though. And yeah. was that, you know, being a man of color, playing, fronting a rock and roll band and, you know, at that time, very traditionally white. And it's like or at that point, it evolved into like a real white thing. Is that ever an issue in a city that like never thought of itself as racist? But we certainly figured that out after, well, after it blew up. Was, I, I, was that ever an issue? I would say it this way. Um, the only time in my life that that kind of negativity was brought to my doorstep, I was, uh, I played an outdoor gig. I can't remember where it was uh, with Johanna Wilde. And I was walking through the crowd after to go to the trailer or wherever. And somebody hit me in the back of the head with a bottle. And that's the only time. I, I say that because it's the exception. Yep. The rest of my experience, somehow, I think I was viewed as different. And that difference was good and not bad. So I never ran into racism at my shows, ever. I never ran into prejudice or, um, or any of those other dynamics that were at play in Boston. It was almost, almost like I had some kind of immunity. Now, <clears throat> it wasn't absolute. You know, subtle racism is a funny thing. Yep. Sometimes you don't have to get hit in the back of the head with a bottle to feel, to feel it. But I can't say that uh, my coming up in Boston was ever... Uh, a color issue for me. I don't think ever. That's a, I, I had zero idea how you were going to respond. So I, cause I, I sort of had that, like as a rock musician, you, it's a different, it's a different uh, vibe. Um, yeah, I think so. Like I said, um, in the group of people I was with, they were players like I was. Yep. And I could play a little bit. So yeah, that's how lot. I was seen. <laughs> I was the guy who could come in and play a little bit. Yeah. And uh, as far as the fans, uh, all that uh, stuff with the busing was raging. And we were selling tickets to mostly white kids. Yep. Mostly. Not yep. all, but mostly. And I think I was seen as somehow different. Yep. And again, that, that, that dynamic, the dynamic of, of uh, separation and, 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 and prejudice. That awareness came to me later in other ways, but not in Johanna Wilde and not at the beginning. Well, well, that's, that's a good thing. Cause I literally had no idea how that question was going to go. So oh, that's, that, that's, that's how it was. Yeah. Right. That's, that's, that's really encouraging. Um, so, um, so Joanna Wilde's doing well. You guys are super popular. You're, you're playing around. You open up for all kinds of bands. You guys, you guys never got a deal, though, did you? No. Um, we were on the verge a couple of times of getting signed by Epic at one time. And uh, I think it was uh, uh, Atlantic. They came to see the band. And at that time, we didn't know a lot. We didn't know about the, the business. And I'm not sure we understood 
at that time about giving up songwriting, your, your, your songwriting rights and, uh, and all of that, those aspects. And I think that's why the band never got a record deal because we weren't prepared to give it away. Yep. We felt like, well, geez, there's a line around the block of pick to people who want to buy our ticket. Let's just do that some more. Yep. You know, and let the business catch up to us. Of course, the band broke up, you know, before that happened and evolved into Axis. And that's another story. Yeah, it's funny that there was a back in the day in the in the 70s, there was a lot of bands, I would say the neighborhoods. Thunder Train never cut yeah. the record they should have. They just took a demo and put it out uh, as their. It's really raw and it's all over the place, and the production is crappy, but it still it sounds like them. But it's yeah. a shame. Like Johanna Wild, thank God for YouTube. You know, you can still find uh, stuff by you guys. And if you're well, listening, you, I would uh, highly uh, recommend it. I will say this: the recording that uh, was playing on BCN, uh, uh, Suzanne. Yep, that sounds great. Yeah, even now. Yep. Um, that is kick ass. Yep. And maybe I think I figure we just got lucky. Yeah. You know, nobody got in the way of it in the studio and nobody interfered. And so we just went in with with, you know, youth, youthful exuberance and recorded the darn thing. And it turned out great. Yeah. And the live sound. I mean, like I said, I, I just want to reiterate to people out there. Go back and listen to some of the Johanna Wild stuff you can find on YouTube. They're a great party band. They've got great guitar work. Uh, John singing's really good. It's just a, it's it's a nice slice of uh, the Boston. You want to see what the Boston rock scene sounded like? That wasn't punk. That was yeah. just straight up hard rock. Hard rock. It was, it's great, great rock and roll. So, so you guys end up breaking up. No animosity. Just it was time. Is that the? Yeah, that's how bands break up. Yeah. There's a freshness date that's that's pre-written on every band <laughs> that was ever together. Yeah. You know, and you don't know what the date is. You you it's you can't find the label, but it says right there in the label, this band's got two and a half years. This band's yep. got four years. So we had reached our freshness date. You know, it was it, at the time that we broke up. We were probably all thinking, well. I'd like to try something different. And, uh, 
and and uh, of course I wanted to do something myself uh, that involved a trio, you know, and and that's how it happens. And uh, you and it's, you struck gold too, uh, you and Derek. Yeah. Um, so uh, why don't we talk about that? How did that? So um, Joanna Wild ends, and then uh, how soon do you start putting uh, access together? It wasn't like that. It was more like I was uh, uh, Johanna Wild ended and I started jamming with people, different people, you know, this drummer here and that bass player there and this guitar player. Uh, 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 th there is a process of just sort of seeing what's out there. There's a guitar player uh, by the name of Cliff Goodwin. Yep. He, uh, he, of course, went on to join Joe Cocker's band, but at the time, he and I were at the formation of Axis. Axis was originally going to be two guitars, bass and drums, a, qu a quartet, like, like uh, Johanna Wilde was. And Cliff was fantastic, great player, great guy, and he could sing. But he was just starting to tour with Joe Cocker, right? Mm. So I can't remember the exact circumstances, but a tour, a Cocker tour came up. And of course, Cliff had to go on it. I mean, who wouldn't? Oh, God, yeah. And that's kind of how Axis became a trio by default. <laughs> so who are the other guys in uh, Axis? You and Derek. And then who's the, who's the bass player? Dr. Chris Martin. I say doctor because he left, uh, he left the band and went to Harvard Medical School and uh, never looked back. Now he has his practice in Pennsylvania. Uh, Chris and I have been together since the very beginning of the band, the way I see the band as a trio. You know, once we had, uh, once I had decided it was going to be a three piece, uh, Chris Martin and I uh, were, were there from the bitter beginning to the ugly end. <laughs> uh, and and uh, I can't say enough good things about both Derek and Chris. They're wonderful guys, uh, terrific players and great people to know. Cool. Um, so when did you, so did you get hooked up? You said that part of the process for you was uh, starting to just play with a lot of people. Did you get to know, like, it, I, I can only go by what I read online. And it's, um, so you become friends with, um, with uh, Peter Wolf. Uh, is that how, is it, cause I know you ended up on tour with those guys. Or no, I don't know if you went on tour with them or if you um, just no, opened what happened up was, Yeah, yeah, that was a tour. We. Axis got called to do the freeze frame tour. Freeze frame was their biggest record. Yep. So they were playing huge stadiums and, and uh, 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 gardens, the, uh, the Boston garden and every other garden around the country. Madison Square. Yeah. And yeah, and we were, you know, because of Johanna Wilde, I had some popularity in the city, which then went to another level. We were hot. And we got the call. Uh, Chris and I were living in a, a horrible apartment in Cambridge. <laughs> uh, terrible uh, and cold. It was winter. We're freezing. And uh, we got it. The phone rang. Literally, the phone rang. And um, it was somebody from there. Uh, oh, no, it was the guy that was managing us at the time. Uh, and he said, do you want to open up for the Giles Band for New Year's Eve at the Boston Garden? I didn't even check my schedule. 
I just. <laughs> Why would I just, you? I just said, yeah, we do. You getting, if you were getting married that day, you would have said yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. So so there's Chris Barton and, and myself uh, playing three nights at the Boston Garden. Uh, and it went so well. Uh, uh, Peter Wolf asked us to join them for the rest of the 70 city tour. Wow. So prior to this, what were you guys doing? I mean, were you playing the rat? Were you playing the paradise? Were you, what was the access? Yes, doing? yes. And yes. Okay. The rat, the paradise, uh, uh, every venue between here and, uh, Maine, uh, between here and Rhode Island and Connecticut between here and Western mass, you name it. We played everywhere. So you were, uh, so you just paying your dues playing, you know, uh, no record deal or anything like that. You're, you're, you're banging out clubs. Do you have any like great stories about playing the route or the paradise or anything that you remember? That's like really, um, I don't know. A great story. Oh, uh, how, how about a good one? Well, I should have Johnny A coach you. (laughs) All right, I'll tell you what. I was playing at a place in Western, the Western part of the state called the Mohawk Club. Okay. Now, when you play at the Mohawk Club, the stage is where a stage would be. And then in back, there's dressing rooms. So during the the show, uh, Derek would do a drum solo. I would take that opportunity to leave the stage towel off, change my shirt, maybe, you know, dripping wet, change my shirt and go back on. So I did that. And I went into the dressing room and there was a woman in there who was trying to steal my pants by (laughs) stuffing herself into them. Literally, I I, I caught her putting my clothes on. (laughs) Then she was going to put her clothes on over mine and presumably walk out. So I walked in. And I said, um, what are you doing? And she said, humana, 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 humana. <laughs> and then I said, please take my pants off. She took my pants off. And finally, somebody came back and, and looked at me and said, what is she doing? Like I had had her taking her clothes off. <laughs> but it was just she was trying to steal my clothes. So is that a great story? I don't know. It's a but, good one. It's a good but it, one. But it happened. It's crazy. Um, so is this when you're starting to form your material, the basis for your first album? Are you, are you writing original tunes? Are you, Absolutely. Are you playing are. Johanna Wild tunes, too? Because I <laughs> oh, I meant to ask you now, were you one of the writers in Johanna Wild, too? Yes. OK. Yeah. I was the primary writer in both bands Okay. Uh, with um, with Jeff Linscott and Johanna Wild. And then when Axis formed, I was pretty much writing them either alone or with Chris Martin. OK, so. Even before you get the Giles gig, uh, you, do you guys have a demo? When do you start showing up on BCN? Because that's when I first became familiar. Yeah, with we we, and we uh, had this conversation about how much I loved your demos. And then we can talk about the record. after. Yeah, we recorded a song called Life Takes a Life. Yep. Uh, which was originally a demo that, the, you know, me and Chris did on our own. And it was it sounded great. It was great. That's brilliant. And song. we sent it to uh, Max Ansatori at wbcn and she loved it and boom we're back on the radio uh not bad for a band who never had a record deal right i mean and when i say radio i don't mean a a, a courtesy play i mean in rotation oh no heavy rotation i love that yeah. song we were in charge of the demos 
Chris Martin and I went into the studio. We were in charge. When we got signed to a major label, they were in charge. And they assigned a producer to us who had his own vision about how the record should sound, which didn't match our vision. It's really no, no more complicated than that. So, so that and Ocean in Motion yep. were two of our early songs that we got uh, traction on before we got a record deal. We did the Giles tour uh, for 70 cities and came back and we were headlining here everywhere, you know, the channel yep. and er every other place. And then we got record deal offers, but it took us coming back from the Giles tour to make that happen. Okay. So when you do get the record deal, it's with Polygram and I forget who the producer was, but I know we worked with a lot of people. Um, Pat so Moran. Pat Moran. And yeah, he, he, did, was an, he was an English guy that did uh, uh, Robert Plant's solo record. Yeah. 
And I heard Robert Plant's solo record and I thought, damn, that sounds great. Uh, we, if we have to have a producer, and we did, uh, Polygram told us so. Yeah. You know, we originally lobbied to go in like we'd always done and let us do it. But now we're in the big leagues, we're in the majors, right? So we don't get to call those shots anymore. And of course we made our first two records with uh, Pat Moran and God bless him, uh, he's no longer alive. He was a great guy, but he had no business producing us, none. Yep. I didn't know that then. Um, I felt like, uh, you know what? I, I would listen to the, um, the rough takes at the end of a day, right? Yep. And I said to Chris, geez, this sounds kind of small and, and not very exciting. And, and back in those days, there was an expression, fix it in the mix. Mm. So I just assumed, well, what do I know? Maybe it gets fixed in the mix. Well, it doesn't. If it's not great from the get-go, it's going to be tough for it to ever be great. So, you know, we were in a position where we couldn't produce our first two records and we had to have a producer. And that's how we ended up working with Pat Moran. Well, I, uh, I met you uh, last spring at, um, at a, like a music expo and we were talking and uh, that th my experience was that I was a fan of you guys based on your demos. Life Takes a Life, which on the record still does sound it sound sounds good. good. That yeah. sounds great. I, you sent me the master the other day and it was great. And then um, I, but I remember listening to Ocean in Motion and then there was another song that was in there. Maybe it was like Real Man or something like that. What the hell's the name? It's a it? new man. It did. Yep. And I'm there like, where's the fucking oomph? Where's the, Who's this? Oomph? It's just like, what the hell happened to these records? And well, I'm there like, uh, imagine me then. Yo, yeah. I'm oh, God. I, yeah. And, and my heart is broken. My heart is broken. Because I thought, you know, like all new bands, this is our first and only shot. Yep. And, uh, you know, what can I do? You know, now it's history. But at the time, it was heartbreaking for me, heartbreaking for Chris, too. And there was literally nothing we could do about it. Yep. We knew what the band sounded like live. Yep. Our fans knew what the band sounded like live. Yep. Everybody knew what the band sounded <laughs> like live, yep. including... The record company who signed us, they signed us based on us tearing it up at a live gig. That's how we got the deal. Yep. But a producer came in and changed it. I would say the same thing happened with DMZ. The same thing happened with uh, the Nervous Eaters. Um, all bands that I had seen multiple times live. And then I got the record and... I just said, Jesus, I, I was, was looking at your catalog the other day and I go, oh, that's right. I had that record because I bought the record and think to myself, like, you know, Ocean Motion and, and New Man were just like our not first, what I was used to. Our first record should have had the impact of Van Halen's first record. Yeah. Now, Eddie was lucky. He hooked up with a, a Ted Templeman who understood one thing, get out of the way. Van Halen was playing just like we were, except on the West Coast locally. And they played every venue and was selling them out. And, and, and they had a thing and everybody knew it. And when they got signed to Warner Brothers, Ted Templeman came in and said, I am not going to mess with this. I'm not going to change a thing that's already working. Right? Yep. I, I wish we'd had that luck. 
It was just yeah. the luck of the draw, man, that we didn't get Ted Templeman and, and not Pat Morant. Yep. And it's, it's such, I mean, but then you just get to see what the, um, the potential negative side effects, even though I enjoy the thunder train record that they just did it like one take and they blasted them out. And there was a, there's a lot of great energy, but it's not like the record that they would make if they had a, like you said, a Ted Templeton or someone like that, but, you know, but, but, but they also didn't get the, the life sucked out of them. Like, like you guys did, I think in that record, unfortunately. You know what? I realize now that there is a, there's a really interesting dichotomy. Back in those days, there were record labels. Yeah. And all of us aspired to be on one of them. All of us did. We all aspired that you've made it when you're signed to Polydor or Warner Brothers or whomever. Now, there aren't any record labels, really, that are signing bands. Oh, sure. Somebody like uh, Jay-Z has a record label. Yep. But he's a, he's a, a, a billionaire and multi-platinum and is not worried about selling tickets. Yeah. Now, what new bands do is they produce themselves just like I wanted to do. They release their own records just like I wanted to do. And, and you can uh, find international distribution to get it around the world just like I wanted to do. Yep. So in some ways, bands who are happening now have a, 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 an easier shot at finding an audience. That's what I'm talking about, finding an audience. Finding your core audience is better now because you aren't restricted by what the rules were then. Yeah. But the good news about that record is that it also got you an MTV and you were you were in pretty, pretty good rotation with um, uh, Life Takes a Life. Yeah, that um, did happen. No doubt. Yep. And then you stayed. So, so the, the two records you did with, um, with Polydor and then with the, um, then you get signed to three records. You did three records with Capital. And I was looking and you were even in like 1987, I forget which record it was. Well, Holy War, that was like So you stayed, yeah. Uh, maintained a presence on MTV for a long time. I know, it's a it's a miracle. Um, as I as I think back at, on those days, it it's miraculous that I somehow managed to stay, like you said, instead of you know some of the one song wonders that came and went, and you never heard from them again. I I, I think a lot of that is luck be completely honest with you a lot of it is luck most of it is timing and a very small percentage is talent uh because if you don't have the first two no one ever gets to find out if you have any talent or not yeah but it's but here's the thing 
you're also nominated for a Grammy for the best instrumental for Ritual uh, okay. with with the Axis. And I forget what album that was on. Uh, that was on the first record. The Ritual was on the first one. Okay, was on the first. Okay, so that was early on, and then you know this. The other thing, I, I, I mean, I would, I would push back on the idea that it was uh, mostly luck. I mean, there's an awful lot of talent, and, and I, I wrote a note to myself last night when I was going through uh, different songs on the, on the, on the catalog, and one is like, for instance, Holy War, yeah. from the '87 album Wishes, and um, there's some, there's some real depth to the writing. Even you know, life takes a life. Um, uh, Holy War. Uh, this, I mean, you had some rock and roll party stuff too. I saw an, an '87, um, uh, an '87 video from MTV that was like, you know, well produced, uh, a lot of dancing, really a couple of beautiful women in there. And like, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it was like it, that looked more like regular MTV type stuff. Yeah. And I well, think you might have had I think you might have had Jerry Curl in your hair at that point, too. I don't um, know. <laughs> I, 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 listen, I'll tell you this. One of the things that now now that I realize I realize it now that one of the things that gave the axis a little bit of an edge is we were throwing elbows. Life Takes a Life is a song about anti about gun violence, yep. period, full stop. Yep. And the video was about gun violence. That's a good video. That's a my good point, video. My point is that one and Holy War was, geez, I, I was talking about religious freedom and, and talking about uh, 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 the Reverend Falwell and the yep. Ayatollah Khomeini. And those things, I think, gave people an awareness that there was something more than just party all night and party every day. Yep. There was more to it. And I think that came through in the music from the first record.
to sound like I'm complaining about about uh, the way the first albums, the first two albums sound, because the truth of the matter is we got a lot of airplay and we also got a lot of interest from uh, rock journalists everywhere. I, I, I've made connections then that I still have in, in, in Europe and Japan because people remember the impact of life takes a life in a sea of, I want to party all night and rock every day. Yep. This said something else. And, and that's, that's what I thought when I, when I think of Johanna Wild, I think of a really good solid party band. It's about women and rock and roll and fun. And then, so. and then when you go to Axis and like the first thing out of the box is life takes a life which is a very serious and a great song it's going to be stuck in my head all week now um and then uh like holy war and it's like those are statement songs those aren't just you know dippy you know no no it's not van halen i mean i like van halen too but they didn't do anything that was particularly serious and that, that was like i said the depth of the songwriting is something that you, it, you really it, can't it, you it can't underestimate us, it gave us a platform from which to grow. Uh, you know, one of the bands that I really admired back in those days was the police. Yep. I really liked them a lot and and I love Sting. Yep. Because the stuff was easy, accessible, and danceable, but he was saying things. Yep. You know what I mean? It wasn't it wasn't about the party, it was about the world he lived in. And that appealed to me. It still does. In my writing now, it is still the, what appeals to me. It's a way for me to express my feelings about the world I live in. Yep. So I, I, I found the thing that I was researching last night. It was called Don't Say Goodnight. It was an MTV hit. It's, it's got a kind of like a 38 special feel to it. Big production kind of, values. Yeah. 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 But that's, yeah, that's, that's the antithesis of what we were just talking about with the other, the important writing. Uh, with the we filmed that on, on an air, on an airstrip. Uh, and Walpole at like three in the morning. Really? Like, yeah, the, the, the directors found this airstrip. And so we set up a, a giant house facade that was on a crane. Yep. And at the end of the video, the house lifts up and it's supposed to be us there playing on stage. Well, <laughs> imagine seeing all that.
That was uh, that was capital record money too, though, right? You did so you did two with Polydor and then three yeah. with Capital. Yep. Yeah. How, how was your capital experience recording and and distribution? Yeah, and all it that? was fantastic. I was able to. Uh, capital saw me as a as as a as an artist, and not just as a flavor. Yep. So I got a lot of leeway there. Uh, I got a leeway to make the the, the wishes record. Uh, I got leeway to to. Uh, to write the lyrics I wanted to write. And more importantly, I was able to produce myself. There's a guy on those records by the name of Spencer Proffer. He owned the studio that, um, I, I, uh, that I recorded at, but it was me controlling the process. And that felt like freedom. I loved it. Yep. And I loved recording at Capitol Studio A where Ray Charles was. And, and every, every, you know, Frank Sinatra was there wow. and there I was where those people were. And so I really enjoyed my Capitol uh, Records experience. So uh, during this, it, it's a pretty long run. I think what it was 82, I think was um, the, the original album. And then 87, I think was the last yeah. 87 or 80, 89, maybe. So that's 89, a pretty, I think yeah. that's a pretty long run, uh, you know, three, five albums in a decade. And is a lot of touring, a lot of touring. Were you like headlining a lot or were you? Oh, my goodness. We we played with everybody. We played. We did tours with uh, Rush. Uh, we we did tours with. Jeez, I can't even I wouldn't even know how to Deep Purple. I mean, we, we we toured with everybody. But the most fun tour I ever did was with a band called Def Leppard. Oh, God. Yeah, that we did the Pyromania tour and it was crazy. Because they were the girls were attracted to all those guys. Yeah. I mean, it was I never saw anything like that. We pull into a city and before we got to the hotel after driving all night, there'd be a sea of people surrounding the hotel. And I'm looking around to see who's here. Well, <laughs> it was us. You know, they, they, the kids don't know who's on the buses. Yeah. You know, so I'd get off the bus. Yeah, it was. And, and the shows were off the hook. And we became friends with the guys in the band and we would hang out and, and jam with each other on stage. It was probably the most fun tour that Axis did. That's, 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 that's when they're in the heyday, Pyromania. Yeah. That was like, I'm pretty sure that was their biggest story. Uh, between, between them and the Giles band, those were my uh, most fun uh, national and international tours with guys that we not only uh, appreciated the music that they were doing, but we got along as friends. So um, one of the things that I like to ask, too, it's like some of the songs that you're especially proud of that weren't like necessarily MTV hits or weren't as well known. But what do you consider like some of your creative highs? I'd like to if you were, you know, if you were putting your best the things that you're like most proud of um, that you did that aren't necessarily. I did, I did two records for a, a label, a, 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 the Shrapnel label, uh, and and they were quote unquote my blues records so to speak because at that time uh uh shrapnel aka blues bureau was you know that's what they were into and and so they signed me to make a couple of uh blues records when they weren't blues really they were blues filtered through me yep. so there was a lot of rock element to it and those records still stand up both of them still sound good they still sound like me i'm proud of all the songs and they're and 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 uh uh, uh, let's see. Uh, one album was called Electric Factory. 
I, yep. I really like that record. And, and I can still listen to them. You know, they still sound like they, they were recorded. I recorded them all and I produced them all and I'm proud of them all. And I think my most fun experience in making a record with something that wasn't all mine was uh, Barefoot Servants. Yep. I was in a band with uh, Lee Sklar, uh, the bass player, uh, who plays with Phil Collin. And, and that band, we, we, we toured and we did two records. And I would say to anybody listening to this, seek out Barefoot Servants. And if you hear that and you don't like it, I'll buy the record from you. <laughs> that's how good I think it is. And that's how well it was received. Both of those Barefoot Servants record are killer. Very proud of them. talk about when so how did the axis end up uh like splintering i know you had a couple albums uh you had four albums right yeah by the time i went to capital uh the band had had more or less dissolved that is okay. to say the touring band that was uh myself and uh chris martin and Derek blevins and 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 dude it, it's such a familiar story uh we spent uh, hundreds of hours in close proximity yeah, because that's what happens when you're on a tour bus. Yeah. So so unless the uh, a band, be this is my opinion. I think if a band becomes like Aerosmith, which is an ongoing money making enterprise, uh, uh, that's a reason that often bands stay together because it's it becomes their livelihood. With us, we never had that kind of uh, commercial success. So we fell prey to what most bands do, which is going their separate ways after you sort of, you know, you send the rocket up initially and it, and it, and it, and there's fireworks and then it's hard to match that. And oftentimes bands dissolve for that reason. Yeah. I mean, it's, you guys did have a pretty significant level of success, at least from an outsider standpoint. I oh no, say. we did. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not knocking it. Believe me, yeah. it, it, it put me on the map. Uh, yep. The success with Axis established my ability to make a, a living from music. No question about it. And then, but, but not enough to become, again, like Rush or Aerosmith or the Rolling yeah. Stones, you know, an ongoing money-making enterprise. Axis was never that. Yeah. So along those lines, I'm, I'm pretty sure we did not talk about this in the uh, previous interview, is so you started to morph. Um, I mean, you've done a ton of things outside of, I mean, you've, you've been, I mean, you've made your living in music your entire life in musical creative arts, your whole entire life. Right. Yeah. That's what Sal was talking about too. He said, he's great. He's never had to have a job. I mean, even though I know it's a job, but then you branched in other things. So let's talk about when the axis did break up where you went and then some of the other uh, things that you do. Um, Cause I know you'd been involved in like uh, film, uh, scoring. Yeah. Well, what happened was, uh, 
when the band dissolved, I think it was after the, I want to say the NXS tour, uh, we were exhausted and we took a break. And what I did is I went to Southern California just to see what the hubbub was. You know, I knew some people there and I decided to just check it out, not thinking much of it. And as soon as I got there, I fell into to music, uh, television and movie music uh, from a producer, Spencer Proffer. Um, he introduced me uh, to uh, Fox Television, which was not the Fox we know now. Yeah, thankfully. Uh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> and so I ended I think my first big gig was uh, doing a video with Homer and Bart Simpson uh, for for the. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Really? You can find it online. Yeah. It's called Party on Fox Tonight. And I'm featured in it. And that was a that was a big gig for me. I was all, all of a sudden. I was you were featured as as uh, as a, an actual character. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. And I shared the screen with Homer and Bart, so that was great. I thought oh, that's that fantastic. Really yeah, and and that was sort of the beginning of all that. Gonna have a party. <laughs> yeah, go tell everybody Gonna watch Fox tonight Well, the boys are swinging And the girls are cool All the sports are smoking And the shows are too Yeah, we got the whole world jamming Gonna watch Fox tonight So what's the uh, so then that that kind of whet your appetite for the other things? Well, one thing do? led to another. You know, well, uh, I had planned to go out for a visit for a week, and I ended up staying for twenty two years. And and the reason, yeah, I know. And the reason why was that you know the music business that I had morphed into providing commercial music, which I enjoyed very much. Yeah, um, I still got to make a record now and again. I believe when I was in California, that's when I did the two Blues Bureau records uh, uh, for uh, for the Blues Bureau label. And and so I was, you know, I was making a lot of money and I bought a house and and did all that stuff that you do. And and uh, before, I, you know, I looked up and 20 years had gone by. So 
so let's talk. So just let's give the audience a little uh, more. Um, so you did, after you did the, the Simpson thing, which is like right out of the box, a huge hit. But didn't you do stuff for like HBO? I have my notes before, but we yeah, had a gap um, between interviews. So um, uh, before the H before the HBO opportunity, I did music for Star Trek and uh, a bunch of uh, shows for ABC and all kinds of uh, 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 commercial stuff. I also did. Uh, I did a commercial for uh, what's that picante sauce? Uh, New York City. There was a commercial a few years <laughs> a few years ago, and and I was I was a cowboy, and so I was doing all this stuff. You, you so, so you were in you were in the commercial as well. Yeah, I was in it also, uh, and and uh, created the music. Oh, that's fun. So I was getting paid twice, and you know, <laughs> and rubbing shoulders with this one and that one, and. Again, uh, for me to repeat it, I've I've forgotten all about the the timeline, but things just went from one to another. But you never stopped making music. No, never. There's two albums that I did for the Blues Bureau label. Yeah, one is called Positively the Blues, and the other is called Electric Factory. And I'm telling you, you can drop the needle anywhere on those records, and I'm really proud of them. It's really um, you know, guitar, guitar uh, rock and guitar blues. And I, I, at that time, I'd begin to figure out how to sing. And uh, I'm really proud of those records, Electric Factory and Positively the Blues. In fact, the title track, Electric Factory, is uh, is an instrumental and uh, you should play it. It's really cool. It's interesting you just said so um that's when you learned to when you were beginning to learn how to sing yeah and i was thinking to myself like i mean i i i was i um showed my girlfriend an mtv video from you uh uh a couple of days ago i said yeah this is a guy i'm going to be interviewing well we did you know life takes a life obviously and i yeah I'm saying wow what a great singer and so um do you mean learning i how hated to, my how to dude i hated my voice really hated. Hated, yes. To me, it, 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 I just didn't dig where I was coming from. And I, I hadn't, you know what? When we first started making records, Axis, I was figuring myself out. I was figuring out how I wanted to be and how I saw myself. So, so my singing has come along, uh, in my opinion, a, a long ways from those early records to to say my starting with my solo records wishes and and uh and uh barefoot servants and all that stuff i'd figured out how my voice should sound and if you put them back to back you can hear the difference 
sang with joanna wilde too right yeah so that was molly's regular rock and roll singing then there's by the time you got to uh the axis you know particularly say life takes a life just being a good example it's uh it's i mean it sounds like a pretty polished voice to me but did you you mean when you found your voice you mean like a blues voice or do you mean just in general i think i just figured out how to use it yeah you know uh i don't want to give you the wrong idea um uh, I, I did the best I could on those Axis uh, songs in terms of singing them, but I couldn't really listen. I didn't enjoy listening to me mm. uh, singing. I just didn't. And that didn't happen until maybe the uh, uh, the Wishes record. So after you moved back from California, what? You know, how, how long ago was that? I uh, left California in 2029, 20, the end of uh, 2009. Okay. Uh, 2010. And uh, I, I, uh, for several reasons, I had overstayed my welcome in California. I'd had enough and moved back to uh, New England and instantly fell at home, f- f- fell in love with it all over again. Uh, of course, Boston looked completely different. I didn't yeah. hardly recognize the skyline. Yeah. And all the venues that I played back in the day, all gone. Yeah, the channel, the parrot. Well, the paradise. It's called something different now. Yeah. Uh, when I played there, it was the Paradise Theater and all the places. Bunratties, uh, Uncle Sam's. I could go on and on. Yeah, all yeah. of those great venues that I had uh, cut my teeth on were 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 gone. They were closed. So it was sort of another time of reinvention for me. I started working with Charlie Farron. Yeah, and we did a we did a record uh, uh, together called Fahrenheit. Yep. Uh, 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 or FBI, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Farron Butcher Incorporated. Oh. And uh, and that was a great record. That was re- Charlie is a tremendous singer. He He's yeah. just great. There are very few that have the kind of uh, uh, power and uh, and articulateness that Charlie has as a singer. I, I think he's one of the best I've ever heard. And we did a record together, FBI, and that was pretty much right after I got got back to uh, to New England.
rock uh, with some acoustic blues because oh, okay. by that time I was feeling that, you know, that, that I realized that that was where that was where I lived. You know, uh, all of my recording, I think, led me to that record uh, uh, with Charlie Farron, uh, FBI. And uh, of course, after that, it was just, you know, all of a sudden I was working again and playing out and all that stuff. So you uh, all and all the while you're still maintaining your um, your uh, your ties with the with the um, you still do commercial like oh yeah yeah that stuff? never that never stopped that's uh I know that it, it, any musicians watching this will appreciate that that I call that mailbox money yep because it's the gift that keeps on giving every year uh, every quarter I get uh, royalty checks and. Uh, <laughs> I can't say it's a bad thing, you know, for a, for a working guy like me, it's nice to have that as, as part of my portfolio. Yeah. I, I have friends that are actors and they, you know, they'll be getting a check. A friend of mine did a Bay Bank commercial a while ago, you know, and he said, you know, two years later during the Red Sox games, you know, when the Red Sox were playing, he'd get checks in the mail all the time. He said, this is great. There was a TV show, uh, I think in the nineties called the Hughleys, uh, starring D.L. Yeah. Hughley. Yeah. And I wrote the theme song uh, for that TV show. And I'm still getting checks for that show today. Wow. I can't believe it. From it like plays, TV land or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it right? plays somewhere in the world. If it's not here, it's Sweden. If it's not Sweden, it's the UK. If it's not oh. there, it's Zimbabwe. That show has really, really been very good to me. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. This time is the right So uh, after you did the the album with Charlie um, Charlie Fahrenheit uh, Charlie Charlie Farron, um you still you've been making music you know the whole time you've been back. So what are, what are some of the other projects that you did? Well, I mean, uh, of course, uh, after that I did uh, uh, an album called Two Roads East, which is which is still out there and can be heard. I'm very proud of that. I did an album called 360 Degrees uh, back in uh, 2019. And uh, that's what I do, man. I mean, I, I was talking to a buddy of mine and we both, we both came to the conclusion that of course I'm still making music. What else am I going to do? Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm not a librarian and I'm not a physicist. Yeah. So there it is. Librarian physicist guitar player 
<laughs> so you're so right now you're, you're let's talk about what we talked before they uh, we started recording um so you're doing a gig uh you you perform with uh sal uh baglio and uh, alan estes want to talk about that project a little sure uh i did a record with my two buddies uh sal baglio and alan estes uh called butcher baglio and estes uh the record is called gypsy caravan and it's one some of the best work i've ever done if you don't have it let me know and i'll send you a copy it's 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 uh, full of uh, uh, of great singing, a lot of harmony, a lot of guitar work, and some great songs. Uh, so Sal, just for the people that don't know, Sal's with the Stompers and Alan Estes with the Estes Boys for like yeah, in yeah. the seventies or something, right? Yeah, we've been friends for forever, you know, and and uh, we would do this show every year, this holiday show, at the Shell and Lou Performance Center. And it was all you know successful, and a lot of people we got a lot of love from that. And one and one after one performance last year, in fact, we said you know we should take this into the studio, and we did. And so the, the record is Gypsy Caravan, and I'm very proud of it. What's that? What's the sound? I don't know. It's uh, what do you get when you have three veteran songwriters and 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 singers and pickers you get you shake it up and mm -hmm. it's an amalgam of all of the years we spent doing what we do so there's a little of this and a little of that and uh, some electric guitar playing and some acoustic stuff i don't know in, in a lot of ways it's like crosby stills and nash oh okay yeah three very different guys yeah who who write together and make a thing that's different than the separate parts. Clear the cobweb, sweep the dust. Tonight we're feeling marvelous. Hey, tell me, boys, who has more fun than us? Call us fast, furious. Just don't take us serious. And tell me, boys, who has more fun than us? Hurry, mama, don't be late. Brother John can hardly wait to kick those blues under the bus. Who has more fun than us? Yeah. Would be a good representative cut. What's your favorite cut on the album? Uh boy, that's a tough one. I think I think my favorite song, my favorite th three songs on that record are Long Player. That's the first song on the record. Another one called Still Running, which kind of summed up the three of us. After all these years, that's what we're doing. Well, we're still running and doing what we do. Mother, talk to me. There's a ringing in my ears. 
I just want to be near you, but I can't hear you. I'm broke down, almost beyond repair. Ain't it funny how the times change when the good things still remain? You can't keep a good man down, and I'm still running, still running. Oh yeah, still running. I'm still running. I'm running, 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 running. I'm still running, still running. And I guess uh, my third favorite would be uh, Railroad Line. It's something that I've been doing live in my shows for, for a lot of years. It's uh, acoustic blues, Delta, and I dig it. Oh. thing that i really meant to uh when i had sal on the show it's like i had sal and i talked after the recording and and i said to him i said geez i wish i had talked more about like stories that you'd like to tell from your career that were funny interesting insane anything and i probably should have prepped you before i um... you probably should have yeah <laughs> <laughs> because you know when you're in your own life yeah it's hard to choose little in anecdotes and yep. points of reference because for me it's been a straight line you know it's not like uh, well this happened a few years ago then nothing happened yeah. and then uh, last month something happened then nothing it's not like that it's my yeah. life is a is a continuum i will say this though one of my crowning achievements is playing at fenway park uh, in Boston. I, I uh, did the national anthem twice uh, at, at, uh, at Fenway in Boston and, and wowzer, you know, um, uh, playing in front of that many people, 42,000 um, at once and hearing, you can find that on YouTube, uh, oh, uh, John Butcher, Fenway Park. Uh, you'll see what I mean. It's, it's an experience that's hard to replicate. So did you see, were we singing it or did you do the Hendrix style thing? Hendrix style. Oh, beautiful. Okay. I definitely got to pull that. Oh one. yeah. It's fun. And, and everybody dig, dug it and it got, I don't know how many plays at YouTube and it's.
playing there in particular there was really meaningful for so many reasons. I started in Boston. That's where my career started. And so walking out on uh, the infield at Fenway is, is, is a wowzer. Oh God. Yeah. Um, all right, John. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on. This has been great. Um, thank you very you much. Get for, better for, for the for second this. one. And, yeah. and, uh, and then we'll, thank we'll you so the... much for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, it's great talking to you. It really was. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it, you're, you're a good guy to talk to. I mean, the other thing I've noticed, like when I'm, when I'm guys that have been around for a long time, Sal and JJ from our DMZ and some other, what, what people have is doing they're older, I think is a degree of humility and like <laughs> perspective. And it makes these interviews a lot more fun than just, man, uh, it's true. Uh, the one thing that I can honestly say is the more years I've been playing, the more humble I've become because <laughs> Because you understand that so much of this business is timing and where you are and what you're doing, when, in front of whom. Yep. And none of that has been in my control ever. Yep. It never has been. Check this out. I, um, when I was living in California, I fell in with cowboy reenactors. Do you know what that is? No. If, if you see a commercial and there's cowboys, it's on a ranch or you know, somebody's riding a horse and yeah, and all that stuff. Well, there's a group that Hollywood hires of cowboy reenactors who do these types of things. They take the unit there. They already have the, the proper accoutrement and the proper boots and the proper clothing and know how to ride horses. Well, I did all that. So I fell in with these guys by accident. Just some <laughs> guy I met named Peter Chereko and said, hey, you want to join our group? And I said, I don't know. It says, well, we're doing a, a Heinz commercial and be at this ranch at six in the morning. Well, I was there and I have the pictures to prove it. And and I did that for a number of years when I was living in, in uh, Cali. And that was a lot of fun. It really was. Okay, John, great talking to you again. Hope to see you on the circuit soon. Uh, all right, brother, thank you. Weekend. Thank you very uh, much. All right, thanks, man. Take so care long. now. All right. Thanks for listening to Rat Tales, Boston Rock Stories. Rat Tales is produced and directed by Lenny Scaletta and Mike Hoban. With a huge thanks to Medford Community Media in beautiful downtown Medford, Massachusetts.